0: deep sea podcast a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea i'm dr thomas lindley with me is the professor alan jameson hello mate you're cooking in a room
1: i am i'm feeling somewhat disenfranchised are
0: you cooking emotionally as well yes it's not just the hot australian room
1: yeah hot on the outside and the inside
0: (laughs) so welcome to episode 40 in honor of us both being in our 40s now as of the last celebration we've had more episodes than 40 we just didn't number some of them because they were just too silly to even be worthy of a number
1: but what are the chances of episode 40 falling upon the 10 years where we can say we're in (laughs) our 40s in fact you're younger than me so we've probably got like a 15 year window where episode 40 had to fall for this to be an interesting
0: exactly i'm not reaching but this is this is a totally valid episode theme we only had a what four year window yeah Before we get into the show, thank you again for more of our patrons. So these people have joined their patron and we'll look forward to seeing them on the Discord in the future. So Julian Moore, Julie Berwald, Karen Pratt and Susan Casey, which I assume is, is the Susan Casey author friend.
1: The Susan Casey. The one and only. The
0: Susan Casey. And thank you to anyone who bought merch, gave us a review, did all the lovely things that can help the show.
1: I've got some news about merch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't find my Deep Sea Podcast apron. What? I, don't know. <laughs> just, I just don't know where it is.
0: <laughs> well, last time I saw it, a skeleton was wearing it.
1: Oh, no, because I didn't buy that one. I had my own one. That I mean, I must admit, I don't do baking very often, if ever. But for some reason, I can't remember why. I said, why don't you use the Deep sea Podcast apron? And then I couldn't find it. That's, I mean, that is the story. I'm milking this for quite a long time, but uh, that, that's it. I've lost my apron.
0: It was there somewhere. Well, I, I looked for it
1: for about, I don't know, let's say somewhere between two and three minutes and then gave up and that's it. And
0: they'd lost interest.
1: Yeah, just like boring.
0: Cool. Cool story, bro. Thanks, mate. It's not like lots of other really interesting stuff has been going on right now coming out of your lab. I
1: not know. It's getting a bit weird,
0: eh? Yeah, let's focus on the apron, eh? Not the amazing octopus footage or the oh, was good, mystery little critter that floated past.
1: Yeah, so there's two things. One is the little weirdy thing that flow you past. Now, this is something that was in uh, the sub video from the dive I did last year to 9,150 meters at the Triple Junction in Japan. And I've got a guy here who's looking through the videos and he said, What's that? And I'm like, I don't know, never seen anything like it. And then it turns out I took three pictures of it on my, my iPhone. So I have seen it before because I took pictures of it.
0: <laughs> and it was wearing your apron. <laughs> but it was
1: there just as the sub landed at the bottom and so it was something that it's not necessarily a swimmer, there's a good chance we just sort of bi-waved it up off the bottom and it was just gliding back down, but then when you get these floaty white translucent deep sea things you're like, ah, oh, it's probably an actinian or something like that and the more you look at it, you're more I'm like, no it's not this is something with bilateral symmetries and this, then I started thinking that looks a lot like a nudibranch, which are sea slugs, but I happen to know that the deepest sea slug ever recorded is about 4,100 meters so this is significantly deeper than all Twice as deep If not more Than all previous Nudibrancs So I asked a few people And everyone kind of went Yeah ooh, ooh, It kind of looks like A Nudibranc But it's very deep uh, And a lot of people said They never said anything quite like it And so I sort of put it on Twitter Finally used social media for good and drew a blank <laughs> so it was really <laughs> unhelpful uh chris smart said it has molex vibes which is the closest to it could be a nudibranch so anyway that was that and the other thing
0: oh, i had sort of flashed it around this end as well like why why were people rolling out sort of sea pig style holothurian? it's
1: just it's nothing like any of the holothurians that we've seen i think it's a nudibranch i will mm-hmm. it. said yeah, so that was weird another one was uh obviously we just finished a big 12 week Trans-Pacific Fandango the folk here have been going through the video so we've been trying to do this thing where we're doing all the data analysis semi-live you know just doing it on the ship so the idea was by the time we get off the ship it's all done and there was a couple of deployments left to do and it was on the very last one out of 91 lander drops I think we did and there's a big eye jellyhead I'm not sure if that's a real common name or not but that's what it was referred to somewhere I think that'll do and it's a sort of truth today and it's just this amazing octopus that inflates its webbing and then sort of hops across the seafloor, just inflating itself like a circus tent and then deflating to become a normal octopus and then inflating again and it's the most peculiar thing.
0: It makes a lot of sense doesn't it that it's almost being a net and something will panic if it happens to cover over it.
1: It's how stretchy it is as well And where does all that webbing go when it retracts it It just seems yeah. to sort of almost disappear It's really odd to watch it And it's also 4,800 something metres deep So it's, even by octopus standard it's, it's, it's out there, you know And so that was it that was quite a big win, And it was cool because of the 91 landers, the very first dive was that one we saw the beautiful lizardfish. And then we didn't see any, anything particularly <laughs> interesting for a long, long time. And then on the very last one, which was actually very close to where the lizardfish was,
0: there was a great big octopus. So
1: that was cool. I enjoyed that. And it absolutely creamed it in on Twitter.
0: It really did. It was up to a million and a half, I think, views when I saw it. Yeah, something like that, yeah. It is an amazing video. We will put a link to it because it is amazing just watching this thing bounce along, deploy its net and then fold up again and bounce along again.
1: Another weird thing happened this week. Mm -hmm. So a guy came around to visit the lab recently. This guy called Chairman Wang from Beijing and he's a guy who has done lots of interesting things like go up to the top of Mount Everest and he's probably done the whatever X number of summits and he's done all sorts of stuff. And he was also recently down in the Mariana Trench in the Chinese sub. So him and another guy came a week apart and they'd both done Mariana Trench and they came to say hello and so on. And they saw my book on the shelf and they were all talking about it. He says, Oh, we read that when we we're on our expedition. I thought like, that's cool. And then I suddenly, suddenly thought, Oh wait a minute, do you know I've got a Chinese translation of that in a hardback bound book. And he's like, Oh and of course I don't need five copies of my book in Chinese. I don't really need one copy of my book in Chinese to be fair. So I gave him a copy of it and he was ever so grateful. And he's like, Ah, oh, this is really cool and then off he went. Before he left he said he was aware to Tibet to go up some mountain. And the other day, he sent me a photograph of him near the summit of a mountain called Cho Oyu, which is the sixth highest in the world, 8,108 meters, having a cup of tea with my book. How <laughs> surreal is that?
0: Yeah, that's really cute. Yeah,
1: he's quite a character he was,
0: but yeah. (laughs) He sounds it. I like that these people just wander through your office. Well, I think it's weird that
1: if you're going to go to do a mountain climb to the sixth highest peak in the world, that you take a hardback
0: copy of my book with you.
1: I thought every gram counted on these things, but apparently
0: not. Because there is a softback one, because that's the one you gave me. I've got I
1: could could give him a PDF. would be lighter to carry. (laughs) (laughs) Put it on your phone.
0: It's not the same. same.
1: uh, No, that's cool. It's nice that my my book's managed to reach 8,000 meters high.
0: Very cool. I've just had the regularly weird museum-y time. I helped move a sperm whale skull yesterday Ooh. because that's a normal thing. When you say help move it,
1: did you just push the trolley?
0: They're really heavy. There was a fork right. involved. I Ooh. just helped guide it. There was massive fronds of kelp covered in light bulbs in our freezer for a while. And then I interviewed someone about their flesh-eating beetle colony. Mm. Um, so it's, it's boring. Boring in the museum. Every day's the same. <laughs> fronds, eh? With light bulbs on big fronds with light bulbs on it was an art and it was really good actually i saw it when it was installed i'm gonna say
1: you're gonna have to elaborate on this one you can't just you can't just throw out a frond with a, with a light bulb on it
0: there's a new uh, new exhibit i think it's called this swaying earth so it's lots of art inspired by nature and you just round this corner and you you suddenly find yourself in a kelp forest with all these lights in it but they're like chintzy sort of grandma's style lamps embedded in these huge kelp fronds it's, it's very cool and you just you just walk around this corner and it's there really? so yeah that was that was living in our freezer for a while to to make sure it was sterile there wasn't any beasties in it Uh and now it's up on the museum very good it was cool yeah good day out We had some some newsy bits. It's been a busy month, actually. It feels. I'm not sure if it's because we fell a bit behind, but there's been lots of newsy things. The ones that caught my eye initially were: it's been a great month for fish smashing their faces into the seabed, Good. and it turns out they've been doing it for ages. So a little bit of local research from uh, the abyssal plains around here in New Zealand. There's a little sort of group of rat tails called Cylarinkus, which I realise I've been saying wrong. I've been saying Colarinkus, but it's one of those Latin things. So Cylarinkus, they've got these big pointy snouts. They're quite pretty looking fish, really, and a team from niwa have managed to marry up these weird horseshoe shaped dents in the seabed with these very particular fish head shapes and they can even tell the species apart and they can even back calculate how long these animals were based on these little feeding traces that they leave in the seabed so they just kind of smash their face into the seabed and take up a little plug of sediment and it leaves such a perfect imprint of the fish's face. It's like those little games used to get, you know that pin thing where you push your face into it, it leaves an imprint. Yes, Fish doing that basically with their faces. So there, that was really interesting got to the bottom of the mystery of these weird patterns and then me and you helped out some paleontologists with an interesting paper uh, so in italy there is some cretaceous era abyssal seabed preserved it was smothered by a turbidite which is like a we've talked about them before it's like a, an Avalanche in the deep sea, basically, so it gets smothered in sediment. And the conditions weren't right to preserve the animals' bodies, but it did preserve their burrows and tracks in the seabed, which is the lovely uh, German word, Lebensburen, that we've talked about before, which means life traces. So we helped the team by providing some examples of modern deep sea traces to see if we could match up the things that they're seeing to a known animal. And some of the traces looked a lot like fish feeding pits. And if that's the case, then this is the earliest evidence of fish living in the deep sea. And we got to do cool things like drag chimera teeth through clay to see what sort of shape they make if they were scraping in the mud yeah and it was a fun uh, fun project and that got some that got some traction as well yep Another ye olde paleo one, research team out of Gottingen.
1: That that sounded very Scandinavian, well done. I don't know.
0: I don't know how to read the dotty ones. has provided the first fossil evidence for higher invertebrates in the deep sea floor, so 104 million years ago. So basically they were looking at uh, deep boreholes in the Pacific, Atlantic and Southern Ocean from water depths, well water that would have been 200 to 4,700 metres deep and just found lots of fragments of spines which were... Basically sea urchin spines, which I'd never heard called the Irregular Echonoids before. I quite like that. That's a good band name, Irregular Echonoids.
1: It sounds like something from Doctor Who.
0: (laughs) But it implies that there's the regular Echonoids out there as well. And then there's this sort of like punk anti-establishment. Do
1: you reckon the regular Echonoids and the irregular Echonoids are at war?
0: Yeah. Oh, like the Dalek Civil War. I can do a whole podcast on that if we want to go into it. Oh, we should do, yeah. That's important. It's important to know our history. (laughs) And learn from it there is a company that's appeared in the southwest of the uk announcing plans to construct modular subsea habitats allowing people to live underwater for up to 28 days 200 meters depth this kind of came out the blue we'd, we'd heard some whisperings of you know people we know and technology going on in that part of the country but then this this project suddenly appeared and it looks very flash it looks like a, a sort of google campus style thing
1: people have been talking about this for a long time though is this real
0: well, I don't I don't know. It's one of those things where like how much of this is, is there and how much is sort of render.
1: The whole underwater habitat thing. I'm not entirely convinced about this. But that's fine. If some people want to do that, that's fine.
0: I'll do it if I've got the chance. I'd rather go
1: to a jazz bar in New Orleans for twenty eight days.
0: Fair enough. Magnetic bacteria have been found in the deep sea. And I just wanted to include this story because all of these words are amazing. It's just full of these words I've never heard before. So, magnetotactic bacteria align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field using their magnetosomes. So, they're iron crystals wrapped in a membrane. They're known from the fossil record, where they're known as magnetofossils. Oh, it's just, oh. It's, it's got such a brand to it this is such good branding and they inform us about the past shifts in the earth's magnetic field we know about them on land and in shallow water but this is the first time they were found in the deep sea and around hydrothermal vents which is interesting and just to, to round it off with more great names they were collected by hyper dolphin written all in caps which is an rov using a magnet.
1: Yeah, Hyperdolphin's the Japanese RV. That's been going around for a while. I've never I've never met anyone who can explain to me why it's called Hyperdolphin.
0: And it's all in caps. It's like, a, is it an acronym?
1: Yeah, no. Is it a particularly excitable dolphin?
0: <laughs> why can I hear the sound of the beam it would fire? I've, I've been watching some, like, Godzilla-style monster films, and I feel like that would fire a beam. You yeah. know, one of the ones that goes, beep! And then there's a big explosion. That's what hyperdolphin sounds like. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: It's not a deep sea story, really, but just some interesting little bit of research on learning in jellyfish. I know me and Heather in an episode way back were talking about deep sea sponges moving. You know, how does a whole animal with no nervous system decide to move in a particular way? And so, working with the Caribbean box jellyfish, tiny little jellyfish uh, that actually lives in a complex environment, it lives in mangroves, and they were able to train them to avoid obstacles and manage to sort of figure out how that how that learning happened. Uh, so they don't have a central brain, but they do have visual sensory centers called rapallium which seem to be where that learning happens. Uh, so I thought that was very cool. Uh, interesting when simple systems can produce complex behavior.
1: Is there any way to weaponize that?
0: Well, of course. Of course. We'll put it on hyperdolphin
1: Yeah. Beep oh no he's firing his Rapallium beam <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's, he's calling the jellyfish all the jellyfish are pointing towards us using yeah. a magneto <laughs>
1: yeah he's charting his Rapallium array and it's going to fire a whole bunch of magnetotactic missiles
0: at us oh it's great all this would just sound perfectly normal in evangelion this is all makes perfect sense uh and then the last one i thought was quite cool was dna from filter feeding sponges reveals a deep sea fish community so filter feeders trap all sorts of biological matter mucus and shed cells and all sorts of bits and pieces so the new study uses sponges essentially like eDNA samplers so collecting dna from the environment and they were able to get information about the fish living in the area despite not seeing them directly and other animals actually seem to make great sampling devices we get a lot of amazing and rare fish specimens from the stomachs of ice fish and so there's a lot of records that are only found thanks to ice fish vomiting when they're caught they're not known from any other records nice so uh yeah using animals as sampling devices is interesting that's it that's the news Anyway, we're under pressure from the Discord to have a live watch-along of Twilight, because of the smelly man who punches seagulls.
1: I'm up for it, but I can't say I'm going to enjoy it, but I think that's why they want me to do it, because people are so bored now that they just want to watch me watching Twilight and me just whinging over the top of it about smelly man.
0: Can we not do The Lighthouse? That is it. That is how we got onto this topic.
1: No, nah, The Lighthouse... Nah, I think I need I need to see Twilight. I've never seen any Harry Potter movies either, and stuff like that. So you know, this is part of my education. Stupid films with smelly people in. Is Harry Potter smelly or is he is he clean?
0: Um, I mean, he he did some grittier roles after where he looks like he might be a bit smelly. Okay. He did some really good stuff as well. He did Dirk, Dirk Gently, Holistic Detective, which had a like weird Doctor Who feel to it, based on the Douglas Adamot novel, which I don't... It didn't get much traction, but I thought it was fantastic. Certainly the first series.
1: Never heard of it. No, I want to do Twilight because it's got vampires in it. Moody, moody vampires. Uh,
0: you won't like it. Why not?
1: Is it all about love and blood, crying and emotions? Well,
0: I am I find it problematic because it's not, it's not healthy relationship examples. It's very self-destructive, but... Yes, it is about sparkling and love and looking at each other all intense and, frankly, stalker-esque, dangerous behaviour passed off as romantic. But that's all romantic comedies, isn't it? Do
1: they end up together forever in the end?
0: Well, of course. Spoiler. Yeah. Well, you, you've got to brace yourself for the rapidly ageing CGI baby and the weird pedophilic thing that comes out of that. What?
1: I thought this was a bit vampires.
0: Yeah. Oh, you're in for a ride, mate. Ah, all, right.
1: all right. Let's bring it on. <laughs> Well, thinking about the film Twilight Twilight is a phrase that's often used To describe the top thousand metres of sea The twilight zone The area of the deep sea which has got a little bit of light but Not too much, not too little What else? <laughs> this is ridiculous This is this is shaky But yeah. it does let
0: us talk about the fact that we found an extra midnight zone Alright,
1: let's talk about the extra midnight zone So the twilight zone kind of works That's a name for part of the ocean Because it is actually in twilight But the midnight zone is the one that does my Because it's stupid <laughs> What do you call the waters that are deeper than that, and actually technically are darker than that because it's less animals, therefore there's less bioluminescence and there's absolutely no sunlight. So, and it turns out Tom found a, a, some sort of graphic in a book that had was it extra midnight zone?
0: Yeah, it, or was it the, the deep midnight zone, the deeper midnight yeah. zone? it was a, a stupid a kids' educational sort of thing, and I've never seen that written before. I've never seen the deeper midnight zone. And then just to bait you, Andrew sent you a picture of a book, a kids' book called A Place Called Midnight. Oh.
1: Anyway, I do have a bit of a confession, or an apology to make, actually. This is... this
0: is Barnacles. Did we not talk about this on the last one? Just in case we didn't. No,
1: we didn't. We didn't. I, this is, a, this is a, a heartfelt public announcement directed towards Captain Barnacles, and I do owe you an apology. I believe it. it might not be you who came up with this stupid dumb term of Midnight Zone. One of my kids brought home a book from school called Oceans. It's one of these flimsy little books with big writing, and pictures of turtles in it and it had a deep sea bit, and it did use the phrase, a midnight zone, and it was published two years before... Oh. Captain Barnacle started banging on about it, so maybe it wasn't Barnacle. I mean, don't get me wrong; I still hate Barnacles.
0: Still got beef. Still got celebrity beef with still barnacles. <laughs> Celebrity
1: beef with Barnacle. So this is not really working as apology because I am still saying I hate you. You but... still
0: turned on him quite quickly. <laughs> you really hate him, but it's, maybe yeah. it wasn't about this. Maybe you just needed an excuse.
1: I still hate you, Polar Bear, but not for
0: this. <laughs> Fight me, Polar Bear. Fight me.
1: <laughs> yeah. So maybe the man is Is not, but. It, it didn't say, it obviously didn't source where it was getting its information from, so as far as I'm concerned, the Barnacles is still getting it. Anyway, let's move on. So uh, <laughs> the twilight zone, top 1,000 metres, which is also in the benthic part of the twilight zone, is where you'd find the blobfish that we've just been discussing, and I'm sure there are pricklefish there as well. And the other thing that's in the top 1,000 metres is some features upon the continental shelf. Now, Tom, let's start thinking about what features are there within the continental shelf.
0: Well, surely it's just a big old boring shelf and it's all flat a
1: shelf with china plates on it that your grandmother has just a big brick of a shelf
0: solid surely there's not big interesting cracks in it that are quite often associated with a big river on land so it's almost like the river continues into the deep sea and carves these beautiful paths that really mix up the habitat
1: if there was we would have spoke about that when we did that whole arc about all the different types of deep sea habitats so surely it must be one of them
0: or well either they've just been discovered this last month or people are really busy and they can't always talk to (laughs) like we pick a theme but it doesn't mean that people are available to talk during that theme turns out scientists are busy and go away a lot
1: yeah Uh, let's talk about submarine
0: canyons I'm joined by Teresa Amaro, a deep-sea ecologist currently based at the Department of Biology at the University of Aveiro. Her research interests cover trophic ecology of different deep-sea ecosystems, and that includes, and what we're going to focus on today, is submarine canyons, but you also dabble in abyssal plains, seamounts, and contrasting ocean basins. Thanks for coming to have a chat with us. Thank you
2: for inviting me.
0: We've been trying to cover the different deep-sea habitats because there's the idea that the deep sea is just this big open space that's pretty boring. And to be fair, a lot of the Abyssal plain is, but there's a few key habitats in there. So I wanted to start by putting canyons into context. So we have like the continental slope where the land transitions into the Abyssal plain. so we have this long slope. But what specifically is a canyon? What sets it apart from the more regular slope?
2: I normally, whenever I talk to people, I normally tell them to spot the Grand Canyon in the U.S., and then put that image in underwater. And and I think then people will understand. And I think it's, it's a very good description of what a canyon might look like.
0: Yeah, it's an easily accessible one. Yeah. Are they, I mean, like the Grand Canyon, are they tend to be associated with rivers? Yes,
2: um, although one of my favorite canyon, uh, the Nazaré Canyon, is not. Oh. So... In Portugal, for instance, you have the Lisbon Canyon and the Stubel Canyon, and they are associated with rivers, but the Nazaré Canyon, which is a little bit north of Lisbon, is not. So you can have both type of canyons.
0: And is the river-based ones the most
2: common type? Um, I think it is, because as you can imagine, uh, you have like a very big influence of a river and the currents and, and then along the time, this can be transformed into a canyon. But for instance, you have the Withered Canyon that is not associated with lands, it's not associated with a river, and it's like in the middle of the ocean, and then <laughs> all of a sudden you have a canyon. So it has been in the past, but then it's not anymore. Oh, okay. But the Nazareth Canyon is like a huge cliff. And sometimes the canyon, you know, takes some kilometers to actually really start. But you have then some canyons like Nazare Canyon that starts immediately at zero meters. So if you see it from land, you see a huge cliff, and then yeah, it starts immediately from, like I say, from zero to six thousand meters steps.
0: Wow, and that must really give different properties because if they're sort of created by a river, if they're almost an ex- an extension of a of an estuary, there's lots of. Material coming in from the land as well, yeah. and it's sort of quite a slope. And then there's—it sounds like there's another type of canyons that used to be formed from rivers, or maybe formed just as clefts in the in the Earth's crust. And they must have really different properties.
2: Yes, but for instance, Nazare Canyon, you have a deposition of organic matter. So this material. And if you studied those walls and the terrains that you have there, it's it's actually the material is really rich with the terrestrial input. So it's absolutely right what you say. But in the Nazare Canyon, you also find these things, and I think at the moment I cannot really compare, for instance, between the Nazare Canyon and the Lisbon Canyon or the Stuble, which has river input. But I think the Nazare Canyon, in terms of organic matter, as enriched, you know, and it's fresher than the Lisbon Canyon, for instance, where you have a river. So the reason for that, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also, it has to be with the currents and it has to be with the oceanographic features, you know, that uh, you have in there. But um, yeah, especially that canyon, which is the canyon that I actually know the most, the organic material is really enriched and until very deep
0: which makes sense why it's a good place to live yeah Yeah. we'll get on to the animals in a second is there actually a definition of a canyon because of course the the seabed's pretty varied is there a point where a cleft or a crack in the earth's crust becomes a canyon
2: yeah uh, i think you you can define as marine canyons are deep large-scale incisions that can occur on the continental shelf yeah and i think they can exist in all ocean margins and these landforms you know serve as a preferential particle transport conduits you know of organic material that can connect then the coast with the deep sea
0: so we know that the abyssal plains on the whole are a very a very static and low energy environment and that's why this input will be incredibly important so so what are the ways other than having more uh, organic material in them what what are the ways that the canyons differ from the the open plains that surround them?
2: I know that abyssal plains normally they are not rich in organic matter and they are really dependent on what's happening in the shallow water like the spring blooms for instance and then they are completely dependent on the degradation of organic matter that uh, falls from shallow water all the way to the abyssal plain whereas canyons you know if if there is a transport of a something that comes from from land then it helps you know the formation of the canyon it really helps to transport the, the material into the deep sea so if you see the structure you know it's like it's like a river right and then it helps to transport this material to the deep sea and then of course it helps to um to feed the animals or the organisms that exist there
0: and sometimes it can be quite quite dramatic sediment flows so it's almost too much of a good thing for the animals that live there there are Mm -hmm. there are these huge turbidity events which are like a mudslide down the canyons exactly there's also some unusual currents that take place around canyons i I think i forget where i was it was somewhere in the bay of biscay i think it was but Mm -hmm. there's there's flushing events where there'll be a a huge movement of water mass not just the the sediment moving down but actually some of the strongest currents we've measured aren't they
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine like um, a snowball, you know, that uh, comes all the way, you know, from the canyon, then it decreases, you know, in volume, and then it just goes down until it finds the terrain. But yes, and also, then if you have these turbidity events, then they are actually perfect. For the fauna there. Well, sometimes. <laughs> as long as
0: they're not too close.
2: Yeah, as as you can imagine, if like the snowball or these turbidity events, if they are like too strong, they can they can damage all those animals, you know, that are living on top. Or, or smother if they're fixed. Yeah, exactly. And then it will be very bad for them. But then it will help others <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Do they
0: have much in common with the with the hadal trenches a lot of this is is similar it's another abyssal adjacent habitat where whereas the abyssal zone is quite static and you end up with long-lived animals that eke by on very little food and then you have this dynamic environment next to it where there is an abundance of food so the animals tend to have a higher generation time because every now and then there'll be the a catastrophic event that'll wipe out a large part of their population so they reproduce more quickly to mm-hmm. bounce back after one of those events is, is there a similar thing there
2: yeah exactly like that yes i don't know much about trenches but i can imagine that in a trench whenever you have these events it drags all the food down right and and then in canyons mm-hmm. i think that the steep of these slopes can be a bit less than trenches but then if you imagine a river right under water and with a slight inclination, which keeps the material being dragged, and uh, until it finds a terrain, one can be deposited. Uh, you, you really have to imagine like a river going, you know, slowly, slowly most of the times, you know, going down. Whereas what what I see on a trench, and I might be wrong, I, I think that it can be steeper, so that the material can be deposited quicker. I
0: think. Yeah, they tend to be in the abyssal plains. And so Mm -hmm. they don't have that direct flow, like if there's a river. So there's, there's not material coming from one end, but it does act like a, like a funnel. And then every now and then we get the seismic events. So a a tremor that will almost shake all the material into the Mm -hmm. trench. So it ends up enriched next to the, the abyssal zones next to it, which are more sort of food impoverished. So maybe similar to the trenches then, this is quite a different environment than, than either of the adjacent ones, than that of the continental slope or the abyssal plains. Are there canyon specialist species? Are there species that really thrive there and that are maybe only found in
2: canyons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of endemic species. But as you know, <laughs> by being a deep sea um, researcher, you know that we also do not know a lot about the deep sea. And we are still finding more and more deep-sea fauna, let's say. So, uh, yes, I would call it that uh, there are special organisms living there. But I also tend to, although I know that in lots of papers it's written that they are endemic, for instance, but I tend to also to think that because we don't know a lot about the deep-sea, I'm not so sure if we would find these fauna, for instance, elsewhere.
0: No, definitely. We have a tendency within the deep sea community, at least to have a lot of biodiversity hotspots and a lot of endemism that really might just be, well, we've only got one sample. (laughs) (laughs) So by definition, it's a hotspot and an endemic species. Yeah, without without sort of saying that they have to live in the in the canyons, what what sort of animals? Do you find there in abundance? What, what are doing particularly well in them?
2: So, uh, for instance, deep cucumbers, allothorians, they are actually, they live great in the canyon. They are like the first ones to appear whenever there is a organic matter event, deposition event. And they act like they are vacuum cleaners, you know? They just wipe out all the fresh <laughs> organic matter. And then, then it gives space to the other fauna to interact. So, for instance, all those in a vessel plane, they are not there. And suddenly they appear.
0: And <laughs> hiding somewhere.
2: Yeah, I, I, we still don't understand from where they are coming from. I give you like two examples. So, if you go to, to the Nazareth Canyon, uh, 3,500 meters. You see a very high deposition of Olothorians there. And then I studied the place and it's, um, well, at that time, the material was fresh. And that could really prove, you know, that the Olothorians at that time, they were feeding from fresh organic matter. Whereas if you go to the Withered Canyon, I visit the place um, several times along different depths, And I found out that um, suddenly the Olothorians were there. And then you go, like, if you go shallower or deeper, they were not there anymore. And so I was like, wow, why? <laughs> um, is, is is it because it's, like, the perfect place to have a deposit, you know, of organic matter or not? I don't know. And then these I, I so I immediately start thinking, how come, you know, what do they eat? And then I hypothesized that uh, whenever the fresh material is there they prefer you know this fresh organic material and i could really see because i i look at into the guts they could really see that these Olothorians were eating fresh material and this fresh material being degraded along the gut and also in the nazare canyon i look at the feces content and i could really you know connect you know the degradation of fresh degraded material but then you also see that whenever all authorians do not have fresh material, they can also survive with very old material. So coming from, for instance, bacteria. So I cannot understand, if I put it that way, how they survive and why you have nothing there and suddenly <laughs> it appears. How are so
0: many ready? Where are they when they're not there? Yeah. <laughs> Is this a swimming species?
2: So, in, in the Nazare Canyon, they were not. So, they were living under sediment. Whereas the species that I found, the other ones <laughs> that I found in the winter, they were swimming. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found out by a paper with Fabio Pileo that you have the same species in the canyon you have in New Zealand, the Kaikoura Canyon. Oh. So, there is a very big similarity in terms of these and these canyons, although the canyons are totally different, but the uh, species is the same, so they live under the sediments. One of the the questions that I really wanted to look at was actually to go to New Zealand and have a look at the Kaikoura Canyon and to, to see how different or how similar is from the Nazare Canyon, you know, because the Holothurians are there, it's the same species, but I never had the chance to look at the organic matter from the Kaikura Canyon.
0: We should keep in touch. I might be able to help with that. Yes, please.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Because for instance in the Nazareth Canyon, I really wanted to have the feces intact because uh so you had the Olothurian, you had the gut, so I collected the sediments and then I collected the Olothurian, and so I dissect the, the guts, you know, and, and then I look at the organic material in the beginning, middle, and the end. And then I had to have the feces intact. So together with um, Ben Burman that worked at the NOC, oh, yeah. we built a poo collector, which was like really <laughs> great. So I, I said to Ben that I, I really needed to have a device that would allow me to collect poo <laughs> from the Olothorians. Because... Uh, to collect the pool straight from the sediment uh, to that have been contaminated you know by the the sediments, so we created a pool collector, so we put alllothorians, we had little devices, and then with an r o v we put the olothorium in each plate. we let it be uh, for three to four days. so each olothorian had like a kind of a funnel, and then whenever they would release the pool. It would fall into a vial, <laughs> and then whenever we arrived there to collect the device, uh, we just shut the vial so it could not be, you know, contaminated.
0: So, part sediment trap, part music festival toilet.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was a sediment trap with. Only Olothorian poo, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but yes, it's the same effect. <laughs> and then it was really nice because you could see that the Olothurian, the gut, was completely empty. You knew you had it. Yeah, my objective was perfectly <laughs> fulfilled. I, I managed to collect the feces and then, then I had a perfect connection, you know. I had the sediments, I had the Olothorian gut. And then the feces, so I could perfectly study which we'll yeah, yeah, which kind of material these Zolothorians were eating and if there would be a degradation along the gut.
0: So these are detritivores, they're living on the, the soft sediment at the bottom mm-hmm. that is sort of cascading down. Yeah. There's going to be rocky sides as well though. What, what are sort of the animals we find there? We find filter feeders there.
2: Mm-hmm. Like um, corals. And uh, although I've never had a chance to study them in the deep sea, sponges, of course they, they exist there as well. But for instance, in the abyssal plain, <laughs> and now relating to the research I'm doing at the moment, they exist in, in there in the abyssal plain, but I've never had a chance to study them
0: <laughs> so there's there's multiple environments there there's these rocky sides and then the, the sediment at the bottom, but it's a really it's a really complex environment. Mm-hmm. there's a lot of dynamic things going on how do you sample here because this is this is tricky this is not a place mm-hmm. you could easily tow gear
2: yeah so it depends how close the walls are from each other yes you can go there with the rov of course and try to collect some animals it depends on the walls and if it allows you i'm remembering now that we actually deployed a lander in the nazare canyon and by the time we went there, you know, to retrieve it. The lander never came back. Yeah, it's really hard. So I think you first have to study in detail how the canyon is, the morphology, and see where you can go with your gear, uh, either with the lender, either with a sediment trap or with, a, with an ROV.
0: I accidentally did a, a transect with a lander. And I think it might have been, wow. it's probably one of the canyons you mentioned. It was one in the, in the Bay of Biscay. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, na- the name's escaped me now. But yeah, it was during one of these flushing events. And I was measuring over 40 centimeters per second flow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lander was just being pushed along the seabed. And usually we've got loads of ballast and they hardly move. Wow. And this was real force. It, it traveled a long way.
2: But you managed to <laughs> retrieve it, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: and then I got this amazing transect as my lander was like bashed along the uh along the, the current. Wow.
2: <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a cruise with Alan in the Nazareth Canyon, yeah. very early beginning, where I think it was was doing some research together with Rachel, Rachel Jeffries. Oh yes, yeah, that was in the
0: early days of Ocean Lab.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, and the lander never came up. So the experiment uh from yeah, Rachel. Yeah, that uh lander never came up and along with their samples so it was kind of sad of course
0: it it happens from time yeah, to time yeah i
2: know <laughs> i know that everything
0: you put in the sea is temporary yeah. <laughs> it's a it's only on loan every time you get it back you're yeah lucky. yeah
2: exactly yeah
0: <laughs> what do you think are the big questions that still lay ahead what are the the big questions in canyon research
2: i think they're still the same aren't they like we find out lots of things we discovered lots of new things we discovered there are really hotspots of biodiversity but i think the questions are still there how come the species or the organisms survive how come these turbidity events happen you know like you can imagine why, and or all of a sudden you have the snow, a snowball, you know, dragging all the material down, and you can imagine, imagine these events to happen, but not to the turbidity, right? How, why, yeah, and how come these uh, fauna survive, like like these things that I told you about the Allosaurs suddenly, you know, you go there and and then they are not there, and if you only have one one shot, you know, and then you'd see, you'd say, oh, Kenyans, they don't have anything, you know, in terms, for instance, of sea cucumbers. And then if it happens that you go there again, and then you find, like, high densities of these, then you change your hypothesis. So uh, this to tell you that um, because canyon research is very expensive, um, and if you have only one shot or two, uh, you might conclude something, but then if if you keep on going there, maybe you know you conclude something else.
0: Yeah, we we assume the snapshot that we get is accurate, but yeah, yeah If you if you'd only gone to that canyon yeah. once, depending on when you go, it's either teeming with holothurians or it's yeah, empty. Yeah, exactly.
2: No, it's true. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I I think there are a lot of questions. I think our questions, hypotheses that we have in canyons, I think they still exist because. Um, yeah, thanks to, to this European project, and I'm talking about the project that I was in, Hermes and the Armione, we, we kind of covered a lot of research in canyons, but it was really, I think, the beginning. And then all of a sudden, I think you, you have still some people that managed to have canyon research. But then suddenly we, we we have to move on. Like me, for instance, I love Canyons. And if I ca if I could, I would immediately change my research back to Canyons. Um, but then you know my my research funds, you know, <laughs> are not there anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can only lose so many landers before
2: you run <laughs> out <of> money. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we found. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think the questions are still there, aren't they?
0: I agree. I agree. Still lots to do
2: multidisciplinary research on canyons again and what I learned it's not nice to only focus on biology so you have to have a very multidisciplinary um, research and you have to go on a multidisciplinary cruise actually to kind of understand what's going on there so I learned that with uh, with all my Cruises, you know, and I was really lucky to have the geologists there. I learned a lot from the geologists, and they were always the first ones, you know, to go in, and then we biologists would go there. So I, I tend to say that I'm not a biologist anymore. I, because I try to answer my questions based, you know, on a multidisciplinary context. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah, they yeah. all inform each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you have to do it in a multidisciplinary way. I think. So uh, <laughs> that's what I learned. And ever since, I've been trying to focus my research in this matter. You know, if, if uh, for instance, I'm leading a project now, it's not deep sea, unfortunately, um, but it's coastal, and we managed to, so managed to write it. And I try to invite people from all the disciplines, you know, because I don't think you can answer your question, even though it's very ecological cannot only have the biology so yeah you have to have all disciplines with you so that's what i learned thanks to (laughs) coming it's it's
0: difficult to well it makes it such a difficult project to sort of fund and there's lots of moving parts to it but but yeah so often your biological context is answered Mm -hmm. by the geologists you know you're, you're wondering like oh what why is this here? Why, why wasn't it over there? And then they'll just chime in with, well, well this one's really old and that one hasn't existed long yeah. enough. And then that's yeah. it. That's a, the biological answer yeah. is answered by the yeah. geologist. Uh, and and
2: <laughs> chemistry. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, to analyze how old uh, the organic material is and you can use isotopes or fatty acids. And so I tend to say that now I'm a biochemistry ecologist <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't there <laughs> to say geo but uh, I need a geologist with me all the time I think <laughs> Every, everybody does just, they just need a geologist <laughs> yes <laughs> totally right
0: we can edit this out if you don't want it to go out but Alan did tell a story mm-hmm. about one of the cruises that you were on and when you were coming into port did you once call a bar and say <laughs> that
2: yes <laughs>
0: Say that you, you had a boat full of people who, have, who haven't drunk for six weeks. And if they can clear the bar, they'll make a fortune.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was in Lisbon. Uh, so, yeah, me being Portuguese, uh, I was with, uh, yeah, with a bunch of people in this cruise. And uh, we had, I think, a night, so two days uh, in the harbour. And then I was planning to go out, me, myself, you know, to, to forget where I was <laughs> and to, uh, to be in land and to be in Lisbon because at the moment I was living in, um, in England. So I was actually, oh, I'm going to, uh, to my country. I want to go to a bar and to buy Joel to have a drink. All of a sudden, I don't know how and why, I end up calling 20 taxis. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> I don't know how uh, anymore, uh, but yes, we, we, we went to a bar and then I was, I think was the only, yeah, I was the only Portuguese, so I went to the barman and and uh, yeah, I was very Portuguese, I would say, look, uh, you are going to be rich today <laughs> because you have these people that uh, they just want to drink and it was a, a mixture of people, the old ones, so the ones that were, you know, wind the cruise and uh, the ones, the new ones that were coming in. So it was a mixture. Oh, it was the oh, it was yeah, both? yeah, uh, it was both yeah. and and I was part of both. So <laughs> <laughs> and Alan as well, I think, yeah, Alan was and Ben was, so was part of one uh, of the both, both cruises, and and so <laughs> it was weird. I said, look. I think I deserve free drinks all night, <laughs> because I'm uh, yeah I I managed to uh, made you a fortune. Yeah, and then I I'm not gonna mention names, but there were some people that were going back to the vessel with me, and they uh, they wanted to to drink, but they they um, they, t- <laughs> they didn't know where or they they. I think they were scared of not to know how to get to the vessel anymore. So they asked me to write with a pen, you know, <laughs> in their hands, all the arms.
0: Oh, so they can just hold it up to a taxi.
2: Yeah, the address of where the vessel was, <laughs> and it was hilarious. No,
0: that's smart. Yeah, it was. That's that's some engineering. It right was there. really
2: cool. I was like, yeah, <laughs> because you can lose the paper. Yeah. If lost, please return yeah, to Yeah, and you could have lost me. I was not going to drag the new people, you know, to the vessel or, or the ones that would stay with me. So, yeah, I, I think I wrote three three times the address in three different sciences. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... You labelled all the them yeah, Where to go.
0: That's a lot of yeah, fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it was great fun. Ah, I forgot this event. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well i'm
0: glad you could bring that out but i i i really agree with you if, if, no matter how busy i am or how jet-lagged i yeah. am that first bit of social before you go to sea mm-hmm. i think is really really important it because is. it's these are people who you're going to be asking favors of yeah. who you're going to be doing things that annoy you know yeah. you're going to be taking up their space or chewing too loudly and things like that and it really makes a big difference if you can become friends yeah. first and then it's far easier to ask for help or for them to tell you if you're doing something mm. wrong. And people.
2: <laughs> True. I remember that after that, uh, after a few hours, so we all managed to, um, to go back to the vessel. And after a few hours, I had a sample. And I remember to uh, offer to the crew members coffee. I was like, I will mm. make you really good coffee because... You know, they would be the ones out with me, you know, to collect the sample. And uh, I don't think they were on that bar. They were in a different bar. But they were all telling me that it was my fault that I had to be out <laughs> not to collect that sample. Oh. And so I, I was like promised them uh, and Ben Uh <laughs> really nice coffee, really good and strong coffee and I I remember to apologize to them so one thing that I learned also with my experience that is uh, is uh, good to be friends with the crew they are the ones oh, absolutely. they are the the ones that actually are responsible for your samples so you yes. ha- you really have to go along with the crew <laughs> so um,
0: and it's their house, yeah. you know. We yeah. we might have a six week cruise, and we say that that's a long yeah. time, but they might have six to nine yeah. months. So yeah. we are guests in their house. Exactly.
2: So uh, yeah, that's what I also learned. And I remember that uh, yeah, I had uh, I had to make really nice coffee for everybody. <laughs> yeah, you got
0: to because you're you're hungover
2: yeah, too. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But but I managed. I, I felt responsible. I don't know how to to explain it, but I I felt responsible for all the people in the bar so uh, although i had free drinks um i didn't drink as much as i wanted to because i felt responsible (laughs) for everybody Uh, i don't know how to explain (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i was the one to blame to (laughs) be blamed But yeah, I kind of forgot all of that. <laughs> Thank you. I like that story. There's
0: some there's some lessons in there as well, but there's yeah, there's some good fun drinking in there yeah, 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 It was it was good.
2: <laughs> Thanks,
0: Alan. Thank you so much, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, a chat. <laughs> no
2: problem. It was a pleasure.
0: She did tell the story about clearing out the bar
1: nice that was a good night that
0: what a legend yeah a
1: lot of things happened that night Though i can't really repeat them on here but it was, it was very funny it, the winding up of uh there were school teachers on those cruises i believe and it was, they were quite green and all very excited to do the science stuff and then turned up that very night uh, and met everyone who was getting off uh, who were maybe had a couple of drinks and They were looking rather nervous as to what they'd got themselves in (laughs) for and they were winding them up something rotten. It was really funny. We shouldn't do that, it's cruel, but it was very funny.
0: It's a form of endearment.
1: Lisbon, I believe it was.
0: Good night out in Lisbon.
1: Yeah, Lisbon's one of those places that always gets a bit messy, isn't it? Oban and Lisbon and Tokyo. Those are the big three.
0: Yeah, they get rowdy. We don't talk about Bergen.
1: I do, I tell everyone about your time in Bergen, but (laughs) That's standard issue deep sea folklore now.
0: We're going to be we're going to be hearing a lot more about current canyon research because there is the InSize conference going on in December. Anyway, the the big international conference for canyon systems is taking place in the next couple of months, and so we might do a little bit of coverage of that. It is also going on here in Wellington, so there'll be people there'll be people here in bars that maybe I can accost with a microphone and uh, well ask them about the conference.
1: Speaking of canyons, we're situated right next to Perth Canyon. We'll be working at Berth Canyon quite a lot when the guys come out in a couple of weeks. That's where one of our observatories is at the bottom of the canyon.
0: Oh, cool. Berth
1: Canyon's pretty cool. Nice big old canyon.
0: Are they back in now?
1: Uh, the first one's been out and back in again, took some nice pictures. Sediment track work beautifully, 5,000 metres. Oh, nice. And the second one's going to come out and get put back in again in a couple of weeks. Sweet. And then just keep doing that until
0: we get bored or everyone dies. <laughs> well, it becomes a long-term observatory and yeah. outlives us all. Oh, it's quite pleased. It's handy having that on your doorstep. Yeah. We used to have to travel a long way for deep bits. Now we live next to them. Well, yeah, you know, this ship
1: reasons tiny and you can rise out in a matter of hours and you get to 4,000 metres of water like, we spoiled. do a wee job and then come back again. We're actually going to service the next one on the quayside and then take it back out. It's that close too easy that's what
0: I say take take some of the thrill out of it yeah too easy I used to like the days when all of my equipment would be lost and I'd have to build it quickly as soon as we got there (laughs) remember I just used to always pack loads of spare parts and I'd essentially have to rebuild it
1: that's the reason why all your stuff got lost because your bags were full of circuit boards
0: yeah I'd have very suspicious looking bags it's fair and that concludes this episode of the deep sea podcast we have a supporters page and thank you so much for anyone who helps us keep the show going we've got lots of ways to help the show from the free like leaving a review or subscribing or just yelling at your friends about it or oh, put it on in the car put it on in the car when you've got people like hostages basically passengers just subject them to this Hi, passengers to uh, things like becoming a patron or buying the merch but it really helps to keep the show going so there'll be a link to all those in the show notes and. To wrap up this episode, we'll deep see you next time, and I miss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. I'm
1: trying to look for a newsletter on this called a bar
0: isn't it? A, a particular one? No,
1: just, just generally. Just wanting
0: to know that. Just seeing what he's up to, your rival. Yeah.
1: See where he is. See look at your social media and see if I can figure out what continent he's on.
0: Figure out his patterns so you yeah. know when to jump him.
1: I think to catch a polar bear you've got to start thinking like a polar bear. Which I'm presuming means mean you have to go north. Like <laughs> being in Australia, it's probably not the best place to go looking for polar bears. But this guy seems to travel the world though. This is no one this is not a normal polar bear. This guy's Captain Barnacles.
0: He's getting a bit terrestrial as well. He's getting out he's getting outside of his lane. Do you think? yeah they sort of did some amazon specials and now he's oh really i and swamps and things yeah he's 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 encroaching on your territory man you might just see him striding up the beach one day jameson
1: that's not how he speaks <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> calling you out he takes his hat off and throws it to the sand jameson
1: <laughs> i i've got total tour of to that beer any day
0: <laughs> any day fella any day
1: yeah i'll fight him on the beaches <laughs>
0: <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> fall into the church speech <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah i'll take that polar bear down anywhere anywhere